Welcome to this episode of the Society for Scholarly Publishing's Early Career Podcast. This is Meredith, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sarah. As always, we want to start by thanking SSP for allowing us to be here and for supporting the podcast. Sarah and I are thrilled to welcome today's guest, Lisa Janicki Hinchliff. Lisa is a professor and the coordinator for research and teaching professional development in the University Library at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Today, we're going to get Lisa's insights about the open access funding landscape and more specifically about the 2022 memo that came out of the U.S. Office of Science and Technology Policy, or OSTP. Before we get into this conversation, we want to remind our listeners that in episodes seven and eight of the podcast, we provided a two-part foundation on the basics of OA publishing. If you haven't already listened to those, or if you could just use a refresher on some of the basics of open access, we recommend going back and listening to those two episodes before you dive into this one, and we'll provide some crosslinks to make that easy to do. And with that, let's get into our conversation with Lisa. Lisa, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Meredith. It's a pleasure to be here. So I gave you a brief introduction a moment ago, but let's start by having you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background. So I've been an academic librarian my entire career, which means that it's been almost 30 years at this point. I discovered librarianship as a student worker in my undergraduate institution, went to get my master's degree in library science, and haven't looked back since. I've worked in a community college, a comprehensive university, and now in a research university for the past 20 years. My career in librarianship has not always focused on scholarly communications or publishing. And in fact, most of my work right now is still focused on professional development and an educational role. I spent my first 25 years really focused in on information literacy, the work librarians do in order to educate students and sometimes faculty and staff about how to do library research, how to understand the information landscape and the like. In some ways, it's not surprising that I eventually found myself looking more and more into the scholarly communication system, the system that produces the kinds of information resources that I was presenting to students about on a daily basis. Starting in 2018, I was writing for the Scholarly Kitchen as my interests became more and more involved in understanding the way that scholars understood their own work and the way it was represented. It's been a great joy to be part of SSP's community, to serve on the board of SSP and a variety of other groups and mentoring and the like, and to have this opportunity to speak with your listeners here today. Thanks so much for that background. So we're going to get into the conversation and to start can we just get a brief explanation of what the OSTP memo is, and perhaps you can touch briefly on some of the implications and impacts that you think are relevant? Sure. I really appreciate you saying, please give a brief explanation, because if anyone's looked at the OSTP memo itself, I don't think anyone would consider it to be necessarily all that brief. So the OSTP memo, in essence, is best understood as guidance to the agencies that are federal funding agencies, agencies that fund research that is then undertaken by scholars and researchers, primarily in academic institutions throughout the United States. So this is guidance to the agencies that says, agencies, you need to make a plan and then through that plan, make a policy for how your researchers will do a bunch of things. Those things are make their work publicly accessible, with a zero embargo at the time of publication, 
It does not dictate how a researcher will do that in the sense of the mechanism, whether referring back to your OA basics, it's a green OA or gold OA. Is it the author accepted manuscript or the version of record? But it does have to be deposited into an agency-identified, approved repository. So the mechanisms of that still remain to be worked out because many of the agencies haven't even reached the deadline for making their plan for creating their policy. So it's the federal government. It's a very staged process with a lot of opportunities. NIH, NSF, some of the larger agencies that were actually beholden to the OSTP Holdren memo already have earlier deadlines. And so we're starting to see those plans come out, the plans to create the policy. And NIH has been particularly at the forefront of getting their documents out to their community for comment. In addition to the zero embargo on the publication, there is also an open data mandate that researchers will have to share their data. That is a lot less precise in the memo of what exactly is meant by that. So we'll see the agencies grappling with that and figuring that out. And there is also a component related to metadata, persistent identifiers, some of the things that help the scholarly communications and publication system interoperate. So I think it's fair to say that obviously the memo has the most immediate impact on the agencies, but of course, once it impacts the agencies, it immediately impacts all those who are funded by those agencies. So we see both institutions as well as then individual researchers, and then of course, publishers as the service providers to this community of work, beginning to grapple with what will this mean for themselves. It is notable that the OSTP memo does say that agencies can have, you know, researchers can budget for open access publishing as part of their grant applications. And indeed, this has already been the case for quite some time with a number of the agencies. So it's not that all of this is all new. It is far more expansive in the agencies that it covers compared to the previous Holdren memo. So the Nelson memo is encompassing of all agencies that fund federal research, whereas the Holdren memo had only been applicable to the largest funders in the federal government. The result of which is, of course, it expands the number of publishers impacted, the number of institutions impacted, the number of scholars impacted. So we're going to see at least five years probably of this rolling out over time. And I won't go into all the details of which parts come into effect at which dates for which people. That is the detail that you should get out of the Nelson memo if you're interested in that level of understanding. Great. Thank you. And just to clarify a few things for our audience here who are largely early careers and may not actually have the contracts of the Holdren memo, that is the previous memo. The Nelson memo is the one that came out in 2022. And then also, I just wanted to ask if you could just very quickly explain what zero embargo is in case anybody doesn't have that context. Yeah. Zero embargo means that a copy of the work, whether it's the authored accepted manuscript or the version of record, is made available at the same time that the version of record is made available. So it is zero embargo in the sense that the public version will be held back. This is a notable change in the Nelson OSTP memo as compared to the previous Holdren OSTP memo. The Holdren memo had allowed embargoes. 
And so it had said that you can wait 6, 12, 18 months before the publicly accessible version is made available to the public. I do want to mention, since we are talking early career here, and it's very nuanced, that the OSTP's memos reflect public access, which is technically not the same as open access, although some people would argue it is the same, and there's no legal definitions here that we're working with. But the significant difference that is worth noting is that public access means that the copy must be available to read, essentially. Whereas when we see open access mandates, particularly in Europe, it's not just accessible to read, but still under copyright. It is actually some sort of license that allows reuse without having to rely on either fair use, fair dealing, or some other way of using the materials. So there is a distinction between public access and open access that we will see made in the literature, but particularly I just want to point out that the OSTP memo only calls for public access. It does not demand a reuse license in the way that we often see in, for example, Europe with the open access mandates. Thanks. Yes, that is an important distinction about the license and copyright versus the readability and access. We're going to move in a moment to talking about the general funding landscape. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you if there have been any significant changes or evolutions in the discourse about the memo that have come out that you think are relevant to this discussion. When we saw the initial memo come out, we certainly saw a very celebratory tone in certain communities, sort of communities that had been advocating for this policy, looking for a zero embargo and the like. And they were faced with people who had questions and concerns about what this policy would mean for them. I would say that celebratory tone is still there, but we're not still seeing the celebrations. And that makes sense because those just sort of are episodic and sort of taper off over time. We also saw a great deal of concern that was initially expressed in the publisher community of what this would mean for their business models, in the researcher community of what this would mean for their grant funding, because even if you can budget for it, Grants typically have caps, so you can't just budget for everything you want. So it means budgeting not for something else. And of course, it means that overall, some of the money that would have supported other things in the research process now support open access publishing. Now, we can say that that's a good thing or a bad thing, but for people who take the perspective that it's a bad thing, there was a lot of concern about this. I think we still see some of those concerns. Some of those concerns are really born out of uncertainty. And uncertainty is sort of inherent in the federal rulemaking and policymaking process. Because as I mentioned, the OSTP memo is guidance to the agencies that says, agencies, you need to make a plan to make a policy. So it's going to take a while before we get the level of certainty that some people are looking for just for tell me what I need to do so I can play by the rules, or for publishers to be able to truly adjust their business models and practices to support their researchers who are now under eventually these mandates. And so a lot of the concern, I think, is born less out of anti 
open access or anti-public access, then sort of uncertainty about the implications for things that people are going to have to make changes in, some of which will not be great. I think it's fair to say every policy has negative consequences. Some of those consequences are unexpected at times. They may be unintended. And I think there is one unintended consequence that I could predict, which is I think we will see that publishers will adjust their business models to flip the system more to OA. Now, this is a victory for people who said they wanted to flip the system. This is a pressure on the system that will drive away from subscriptions towards full OA. The issue, of course, being is that once we're in a full OA model for journals, now we have a different kind of problem, which is what do we do about people who don't have research funding that will pay their APCs or are not associated with an institution that strikes some sort of agreement, a peer publish agreement or a transformative agreement with a publisher. So we will have a different kind of challenge that emerges as we move the system in the direction that some people were advocating for. I'm not sure I kept to either brief or basic with some of this, but it really is complicated. And perhaps if anything, this can just indicate some of the threads an early career person would need to start following if they want to truly understand the implications of this memo broadly, but particularly the kinds of questions they might ask about what it might have an impact on for the current publisher that they're working for, or the kinds of questions they might want to ask in a job interview if they are looking to change publishers or move elsewhere in the industry. Yeah, it is very complex and there's so much more we could get into and it's actually quite hard to keep it simple in a way. Some of the the things you mentioned around transformative agreements and things like that are covered in that two-part series I referred to earlier too. So we don't need to get into the specifics of what those are, but our audience can go back and listen to that for a little bit more context too. I think this is a good moment to transition to talking about sort of how this fits into the overall funding landscape. So we'll do that next. Thank you so much, Meredith. I just wanted to pick up from what Meredith just said about transitioning into the bigger picture landscape. And I want to touch on what's going on in the overall global funding landscape. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening globally and share a bit more insight into what would be important or useful for our audience to know, in particular around potential regional differences? So, for example, Is America doing something that will have an effect on the rest of the world where perhaps the European Union's taken a different angle? What complexity do we now see due to these regional differences? I think as we think about the way this most recent OSTP memo might impact the global sort of look at funding is that it's not going to impact it as much as if the U.S. hadn't already had a public access mandate under the previous Nelson memo which was only covering the largest funders in the United States, but it was covering the largest funders in the United States. So when you have NIH, NSF, et cetera, that are already under a public access mandate, we've already seen in those communities the shift to open access publishing. What's interesting, I think, is what I spoke about earlier, which is that the European model has been a model of not just reading access for the public, but really something that pushes further than the taxpayers should have access to what they funded argument. And one that says 
this information should not just be accessible to taxpayers, it should be reusable in a lot of different ways. And we particularly see the mandates for CCBY licensing as really pushing what reuse means, where there's even the idea that this scholarship that funders fund is seen as an economic investment, in many cases, not just in the public sphere, but also something that the private sphere, that commercial agencies can then commercialize, build upon, et cetera. And that is probably the most significant difference, which continues to exist between the public access model of the United States and the open access models that we see in Europe. Of course, there's other large parts of the world here with significant research output. We would be remiss not to think about China in this context. China also has some interesting policies relative to open access. And I would just encourage our early career publishing professionals to take a look at the recent report that came out of the STM Association in partnership with some colleagues in China about the way open access is developing in China, if you're interested in taking a look at that. It's incredibly clear that there is just so much complexity globally. Are each of these countries working in a bubble? I don't know that I would say they are working in a bubble. I think all of these groups, funders, governmental funders, as well as some private funders that are involved in things like Plan S, are quite aware of the rest of the activities in this area. So I wouldn't characterize it as working in a bubble. What I would say is that they are not all pursuing exactly the same aims. And if we don't distinguish between their respective goals, we might not always understand their respective choice about mechanisms. And so it isn't the case, I don't think that they're not aware of or influenced by the other parties, but they may also not be looking to achieve the same things. And so we just have a variety of things that might be coming into play. I think it's also worth noting that even in a given country, and I'll just go back to the US here, you know, we're not all of one mind on this because at the same time that we have this push for open access, we also have the federal government quite concerned about espionage or the like in some of our national research laboratories or our research intensive institutions where there's concern that, you know, perhaps not everyone is just in it for the pursuit of science. And so we see kind of coming out of different parts of the White House or the federal government, different policies that if you sort of dig into them at their most basics are a little bit contradictory. We're a big, diverse country with very diverse policies that we're often trying to work things out. So I wouldn't say there's a bubble operating at the country level. I wouldn't say there's even a bubble operating at the offices within the White House. I would say that in each case, we have a particular set of concerns, and then policies get developed around those concerns. The complexity just blows me away, and I think it will surprise our listeners as well. I think when these memos are released, we look at them and take them at first value and there's so much going on underneath. So what comes next for OSTP? What are the next steps? So, you know, as I mentioned, it's a memo to the agencies that says, please tell us your plan 
to develop a policy, which you will eventually implement. So right now, the agencies that were subject to the Holdren memo have reached their deadline for filing their plans with the OSTP. Those, I presume, are currently under review with the OSTP. In all cases, they're also under requirements to engage the stakeholder communities. So we'll see each of the agencies working through a process of engaging their stakeholder community in order to get feedback on their plan and eventually their policy and the implementation of those policies. So what I would say is however much we've heard about the OSTP memo, talked about it, worried about it, had podcasts about it, there is so much more to come that we are only at the beginning of what is going to be a long-term engagement with this policy. Got you. Thank you very much. And what is your advice on how early career professionals can stay up to date on the latest in this area, given the amount of complexity that we've discussed? So the first thing I'd encourage is to not be overwhelmed by complexity. It is the case that it's a complex policy, But, you know, you can read the memo, parse it out. In the end, this is a memo that has to speak to thousands, millions of people. And so it is possible to slowly read through it and get through it and then have your own questions about it. So I think it's worth not just adopting the perspective of whoever might be around you, but really read those documents and get your own firsthand knowledge of them. As you're looking to keep up, of course, I'm going to say you should read The Scholarly Kitchen. As a chef in The Scholarly Kitchen, I've certainly been part of many of the discussions related to how the publishing industry is engaging with these different policies. I absolutely think that you should work with your supervisor to get you to the SSP conference in Portland this year or wherever it is in future years, because it's a great opportunity for dialogue within the field about what these things might mean. I think the other thing that somebody might do, particularly if you're working with a publisher for a publisher that has a more narrow focus, is you should really understand which agency's policies are going to most likely impact on the publisher that you work for. You could obviously ask around your own organization for that. You could think about looking at the publications you publish, see where they get their funding from. Those are then the agencies that you might consider going to their websites and signing up for their newsletters or their alerts. You'll get a whole lot about the agency, not just about the OSTP memo process, but you might just think about narrowing what you need to track based on the scope of the publisher that you're working for. Now, of course, if you're working for one of the large, large publishers, it's going to be all of them. But if you're working for one of the large, large publishers, you also have a policy department that should be helping you if you're reading the guidance that they're sending out within the company and internal communications. So I think there's a lot of ways to keep up on this, but I think most importantly is to you know pause, take a breath, The sky is not falling. There are many things that will come to be. And there's an opportunity here to be part of something that in some ways is very exciting. This is going to be transforming the way we're doing our work. And there's an opportunity to shape a new future here if you care to. Thank you so much, Lisa. I found that incredibly insightful. And I've learned so much. There is so much more complexity here than than I thought there was. And something that I certainly hadn't realized was how early we are in the process. It's very clear that there is a lot of work still to be done over the coming years. 
Meredith, was there anything that stood out in particular for you? Yeah, I think I share your view, Sarah, that the complexity, I knew coming into this conversation how much there was, and yet there's still more than I thought there was. But I really appreciate, Lisa, your effort to get the salient facts into your answers, but also try not to make it overly complex. I know how challenging that is to do, and we challenge you with that. So I definitely appreciate that. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you so much again, Lisa. That's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening and, of course, for SSP for hosting the podcast. We will be back again soon with another topic. And for now, please keep listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye.